Welcome to Change Making Connections, the podcast where transformative talks on social justice, leadership, and beyond become more than just words. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I invite a global change leader to talk with me about the strategies and tactics that they use to cultivate deep transformation in their lives, their communities, and their organizations. Tune in to Change Making Connections for your monthly dose of inspiration and insight. Let's create a ripple of change together. Hello and welcome to Change Making Connections. I'm so excited today to talk with Lewis Raven Wallace, who is an independent journalist based in Durham, North Carolina, doing really interesting stuff. Uh, Lewis, thanks for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited to dive in and talk about some of your work, and we'll include the the whole bio in in the show notes. But can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing right now that you're really excited about? Sure. So I am working on my second book right now. My first book was about the myth of objectivity in journalism and kind of exploring really in depth the the history of journalistic voices who have been silenced or pushed out of mainstream journalism or sort of the canon of journalism in the U.S. because they did not represent a kind of status quo neutrality or because they pushed back against the framework of objectivity. So that book was a history, but also kind of a challenge to journalism about what it can be in this political moment. Uh, The book is called The View From Somewhere. I'm now working on a second book that's about radical unlearning. So it kind of follows the thread from the view from somewhere and the question that comes up all the time with journalists, as well as with people who care about journalism, is what is the relationship between information and action? And why do people, what moves people to actually do something about injustice or or just to participate, to engage in their community, whether it's through voting or showing up for a protest or showing up in other ways, mutual aid, um, what gets people to engage? And I think there's a lot of frustration within journalism about kind of a a lack of a unified theory (laughs) about why we do what we do as journalists. You know, what, where does that information go and what does it mean to people? And it gets to this existential kind of question of, why doesn't why isn't knowing kind of enough? So if you get information about something, why is that often actually not enough to either change someone's mind or convince them to take action or to stand on the right side of history? So radical unlearning is an exploration of what creates the conditions for us to change, for us to change deeply held ideologies and belief systems. So, you know, I've grown up with a a lifetime of messaging of messaging of white supremacy and racism, the sort of latent liberal white supremacy that surrounds us in this country. What creates the conditions for me to unlearn that? A lot of people grow up with the myth of binary gender. And as a trans person, I sort of had to unlearn that, but I've become very curious about what other than sort of the internal identity driver, like of, I feel this way, creates the conditions for it to actually be possible for for people to unlearn those ideas, ideas that can be very harmful and and limiting. So that's what I'm writing about now. And it's a big kind of curious exploration. 
Wow, that is so fascinating. Because um, when you say radical unlearning, it brings me to the resonance with me is the idea that that is an ongoing practice, at least something that I'm constantly engaged in. And some days I do it better than others, but it's, it's not for me like a switch is flicked, but that I have to constantly pause, reevaluate, excavate, seed something different, align with values that I care about in the world and discern whether the internalized messages that I'd all so deeply learned, whether they align with what I care about or not. I'm curious when you say what creates the conditions, what kinds of things come up for you? What are you writing about? Yeah, well, I think the kind of underlying conditions in almost all cases that I've studied and read about and learned about through the interviews that I'm doing for this book there's always an element of relationship, of connection and collectivity and honestly love. There's some really interesting stuff at kind of the neuroscience level about how love itself, the experience of love and the the hormones and neurotransmitters associated with love actually make us more neuroplastic, make our brains more likely to be open to change. And there's like these interesting biological reasons for that. Like when you have a baby, you, you get a lot of those hormones like from the baby and it helps to change your whole life and routine and be sort of willing to do that, you know? So there's like these physiological reasons that, um, that love helps us unlearn. But I think there's also kind of a profound and, and often ancient knowledge of that, right? That, that all the sort of powerful transformations happen in relationship and we don't necessarily need neuroscience to tell us that. So that's one condition is relationship. I think that's a condition in all the other conditions that I look at. Some of the other conditions that I've been writing about, another one is uh, conflict and confrontation can create those conditions. None of these are inevitable, right? We don't inevitably unlearn anything. It's a process and uh, not a not a simple one, but kind of diving into how conflict and confrontation actually are important. So it's not love in the syrupy sense of like being nice or only saying positive things. <laughs> uh, the, the combination of love and confrontation can actually be a very powerful condition for unlearning love and discomfort. I think art is another one, especially where it becomes sort of immersive or something that we can experience like thoroughly. Um, so I would say that's more so like the practice of art. One of my favorite things that I've learned so far and written about is the the surrealists, the surrealist movement, who are very actually kind of developed this like expertise in what I would think of as radical unlearning. You know, they were really, really thinking about how to get people to think outside of current systems. And their answer to that was tap into the subconscious, like listen to your dreams and write and make art from a place that's fully connected with the subconscious. And through that, it will open up these like questions and possibilities, right? And a lot of people don't know that the the surrealist movement was an anti-colonial movement and an anti-capitalist movement and anti-racist movement. That part of the story has been kind of 
pushed to the side by mainstream narratives of, of surrealism itself. So it has these radical roots as a practice that the idea wasn't like these painters who will one day be famous are going to make this art based on dreams. The idea was everyone should make art based on dreams and that will help us to see outside of our current reality. So that's a condition of unlearning, you know, dreams and the surreal that I've really enjoyed learning and thinking about. Mm, that's really intriguing. So many things. I did not know that about the surrealists. So thank you. I look forward to reading more about that. The combination of love and discomfort or conflict and confrontation, that's fascinating to me. Uh, how do they kind of become an alchemy, do you think, to unlearning harmful ways of being? Well, I think unlearning requires us to stay in cognitive dissonance. And there are kind of, to simplify it a bit, two ways that cognitive dissonance can go, right? Like, so if you're, if you're experiencing a, like, I feel this, but I know this, or I know this, but I feel this, that, that creates tension inside of you. And, um, you know, people tend to resolve it by either kind of, uh, repressing the feeling to go with whatever like the dominant knowledge is or rejecting the knowledge in, in favor of the feeling, you know, it's uncomfortable. And so it's something that we, we want to resolve. I think most unlearning sort of takes place through staying in cognitive dissonance that the, the urge to immediately resolve it uh, has a tendency to to put us back to sort of one knowledge set that was what was already there, or to go to a place of of like sort of total rejection of the self, and neither of those is really sustainable. And so, where love comes in is that that's I think the force that allows us to be in the moment of conflict internally. And like not freak out, be able to stay there <laughs> for long enough to maybe see another way out other than what appear to be like the two contradictory options that are there, you know? So like I think about young trans or gay people sort of being told like either you love yourself and listen to your, your true self and what that's telling you, or you love God, right? And you have to choose between those things and People are going to resolve that in very, very painful ways without being loved and experiencing love at some point in the middle of that, of that conflict. I think it, it enabled, I think love is like the alchemical thing that enabled, uh, enables us to uh, expand ourselves to have enough room for cognitive dissonance and then, you know, resolve it without silencing uh, our own truths or, or the truths that may be filtered. You know, sometimes it goes the other way. It's like my emotional truth and what's actually happening in the world are in, you know, are in conflict. And I want to stay with my emotional truth, but with a little bit of bolstering inside of myself and in community, maybe I can expand myself enough to let this other information through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the tension is a requirement. I think that's a that's the thing of it, and that's a that's a piece that often get missed gets missed with this whole discourse around, you know, calling people in and making space for compassionate conversations. That's important, but it's it's actually I think equally as important that we actually 
cultivate the skill of being in discomfort, feeling uncomfortable and not shying away from that. And, and I think conflict in particular is a part of that, that, you know, in the moment may be unpleasant, but in the long term is um, one of the most generative things. Mm. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me. One of the things that I have to unlearn, and I'm very clear on how that is connected to my own upbringing as a white cis woman in this U.S. culture, um, is my own fear of conflict and that conflict means belonging. The, the old narrative for me that I internalized was that conflict means I'm unlovable and results in lack of belonging. Whereas, but in reality, to avoid the conflict meant adhering to white supremacist and sexist and, you know, transphobic narratives and ideologies that I don't align with. And so one of the things that I've had to develop is the capacity to be with that discomfort and with other people's discomfort. And it strikes me just to go back to your earlier point that relationship undergirds all of these conditions, like relationships is are one of the whys we would do that. Yeah. Anything resonated with you or not, or questions coming up for you about the love, the conflict, the how do we stay in discomfort? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that comes to my mind, one of the people I interviewed was a soldier in the IDF and the Israeli army. And he had witnessed firsthand the kind of violence of occupation and the dehumanization of Palestinians, but in a way that like, so I think it's easy sometimes to believe like, oh, if we all just were in relationship, that would, or if we had a dialogue, right, that would resolve things. But, but for him, the story was so long. It was like, cause he had to go from not knowing that a Palestinian was really a person to like realizing that Palestinians were people to realizing that he'd been really been lied to by the people he most loved and the people he knew in his society to like making a series of decisions and his unlearning that led him essentially to, to leave his, his society, which was Israel like forever. And that was the trade-off for deciding to, to stand up, uh, for Palestinians, for just the basic humanity and livelihood of Palestinians. And so relationship was one part of it. Certainly, I think the the toughness of sitting in, in um, cognitive dissonance was another part of it. And then something that he talked about a lot was also spirituality, not religion per se, but like a lot of kind of like finding another way through his own body to like cope with just how violent and unpleasant the sense of having not having not seen what was right before his eyes or having not being betrayed by his own society, I guess. So that was a, one of the unlearning stories, one of the like harsher and more intense unlearning stories that I've done an interview about. I also interviewed a former white supremacist activist. And these are like more extreme stories, right? Like going from all the way over here to all the way over there. But I think they're useful for kind of understanding 
what makes these things possible. So I, I interviewed a, a kind of a well-known former white supremacist named Derek Black, who actually went to college at the New School in Florida. And the people at the New School, the other students, when they learned that he was like a literal active white supremacist activist, he had a radio show and he was like rallying white nationalists around the country. When they learned this about him, they were like pissed, you know, and there was a big uh, protest basically against him even being on the campus and being accepted into different spaces. Some people did that. And then what some other people did who were uh, Jewish people and people of color was they invited him in. They started having dinner with him and talking with him and spending time with him. And over many, many years, it took years, his perspective changed. And after he graduated the new school, like after the whole thing had come and gone and he'd walked in graduation and people like booed when he walked, you know, like he was, it, it was understandably, he, he, you know, not welcome in that space in some ways, but afterwards he, like it finally kind of like filtered through and he renounced his family. He made a public statement through the Southern Poverty Law Center, which, you know, monitors hate groups and had monitored him and his family and they were listed he made a public statement through them renouncing his family's beliefs and um, basically left his own family behind forever. But that's another really good example of like the combination of confrontation and love. I don't know that the kind and friendly conversations alone would have accomplished that, right? Because there was something about, and he said this in our interview, like there was something about the confrontation that made him really question himself that made him think, how could all these people who are otherwise so lovely be so hurt and angry by this thing about me that I think of as being reasonable? And, you know, obviously to a lot of us, it's like, well, how could you think that? But that was how, I mean, that was from infancy, how he, he had a whole different set of information and ideas about what was true and real. And I think a lot of us are in that in ways that, you know, we don't always see, right? Like, and that's sort of the point is that you don't see it until you have an uncomfortable moment where you think, what if everything I thought about this wasn't true? So I, those are on my mind because I think a lot of people are having moments like that right now about Gaza and uh, about Palestine and, and just sort of having to sit with like, what is true? And what if, what if the things that I've been told by people who I love are, are not true? So those are really powerful stories. And I wonder, there are spaces in this current world that feel really polarized. I don't know if they're any more polarized than they've been in the past, but I wonder how these stories and the particular kind of journalism or the role journalism could play in bridging that polarization, if, if it's any different than we normally find yeah. I mean, I tend to think that polarization itself is a symptom and not a cause. And so in sort of analyzing like the, the root causes of things, I think often we use polarization in reference to like a whole bucket or like a whole umbrella of problems, right? That like in the U.S., 
something we might call polarization sometimes is actually the is actually about racism, right? And people are polarized along, whether it's along lines of race or along lines of beliefs and understandings about race and history, that I think the root cause there is racism and white supremacy itself and not the polarization per se. And I think there's a lot of other examples like that. I mean, the biggest one that we have is sort of the two-party system in the U.S. and how how actually that system itself kind of benefits and reproduces itself through the production of polarization, you know, in, increasingly kind of extreme and oppositional views on both sides and the uh, particularly the television media, but also print and radio media have a, a big role in upholding that. So that's just a little um, like a footnote about polarization itself. What I will say in terms of my studies of unlearning is that it seems to me so far that the best thing that journalists can do to sort of challenge and counter just the idea that there's one truth and you already know it <laughs> is to report with nuance. And so to the whole both sides thing, you know, you get the left and you get the right. People are tired of that and people are polarized by that, actually, that kind of both sides reporting doesn't produce a less polarized populace. It produces a group of people who understand that your choices are either this or that, way over here, way over there, and are in fact more likely to kind of plant a flag over here or over there. Whereas stories that go in with with nuance and that don't say it's one side or the other, but that say here's multiple ways of looking at it, and here's why we're talking about it that way. Those kinds of stories open up different kinds of opportunities for unlearning and for rethinking. Not just one of those stories alone, right? Can't accomplish that. But many stories that approach the truth that way and that approach truth actually as multifaceted and complex. So, you know, I think we're dealing with a kind of toxic both sidesism in journalism that is then reflected in the culture that's then reflected in the journalism and back and forth and on and on forever, you know, that, um, that actually for most people is pretty alienating. Like most people don't identify more strongly with being a Democrat or Republican than a lot of other things in their life. Like we all have lives that are more complicated and nuanced than that. And so for journalists to think about like, what does it mean to really humanize our audiences as complex people who can handle complexity <laughs> and who don't need things sort of simplified for them and don't need a false performance of, we heard from both sides when you know one of the sides is lying. Like people are sick of that stuff. And um, uh, it, I think it's primarily kind of politicians, parties, and and also authoritarian voices who call for this kind of rigid both sidesism or who use the wedge of, you know, media bias or liberal media bias or whatever to um, shoot down journalism that attempts to, to have more nuance. So yeah, I think there's something of a fight to be had there on behalf of, of nuanced journalism uh, as a, not a solution to polarization, but a recognition that polarization is kind of a, a media product. It, you know, it's something mm -hmm. that, that we create. <laughs> it's not, it's not as innate as people are led to believe, I think. So that leads me to one of the 
there are many motivations for creating this podcast. One of them is that one of the many hats I wear is a gender and women's studies professor. And I work with a lot of leaders who are going to be starting off their careers. And I'm curious then, what do you have any insights that could support people who are starting off in journalism to advocate for that nuanced journalism? Anything that you learned either the hard way or that you've discovered to be really helpful along the way? I think the first thing for new journalists to do is to get really, really good at shoe leather journalism. And by that, I mean, talk to people like not the lazy kind of clicking on some links and people say this and people say that, but going out and talking to people, people on the street are so much more interesting about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like when you just go out and talk to people anywhere, people will say things that surprise you and you will become a very good journalist by sort of aggressively going out just in the world and talking to people and reporting and seeing things with your own eyeballs if possible. A lot of reporting these days kind of incentivizes not doing that and like repeating the same narrative and linking to the original source and da 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 da. Becoming a good shoe leather primary source reporter who can talk to lots of different kinds of people and be genuinely curious, I think is kind of like step one because people with that skill are highly valuable. And you can do a lot. Like once you start talking to people, really talking to people, really helps you understand how many angles there are on a thing, right? Like every story is complex. There's no excuse for non-complex reporting if you're out there really listening. So having that kind of ethos of curiosity, the other thing that that does is it shows your you know, bosses and all that you are a real reporter, that you know how to do this stuff. So like really sharpen the skills. That's the first thing I would say that I, I was really lucky to get to work as a daily news reporter in a public radio station in the city of Chicago, where, you know, just my first year in journalism, but for that year, I went out every day and just talked to people and filed stories. And it was, you know, crazy amounts of work, but um, extremely good for my learning how to be a journalist and learning the difference between a journalist and an an essayist or an organizer that, you know, I don't believe in objectivity, but I do believe that there's a practice of journalism that's distinct from opinion writing, for example. And what makes it distinct is that it's about curiosity and to some extent about new information about things that people don't know yet that you're like finding out or that people haven't heard about this exact thing yet. And as a journalist, you're a conduit. So it's a very exciting role to be in. And then the other thing I would say, other than like, you know, be as good of a journalist as you can be, is have a community that is not your job. That's not your professional role. Have a community of people who hold you accountable to your values and who support you when you do need to stand up to the powers that be in your newsroom or, you know, I think being an ethical person in capitalism in any industry is hard and journalism is an industry, but it's not unique in this way. And having like a home, a home community, like a a pod that you're a part of that kind of holds you in making those moral and ethical decisions and knowing what's right for you and being able to tolerate, again, a certain amount of discomfort or risk-taking 
that also happens in, in community. So have your people and don't worry if your people aren't in your workplace because it's maybe even for the best. You can, you know, <laughs> have your community and then do what you need to do in your role as, as a journalist. Yeah. Thank you for that. I would echo that for any field people are going into. So important. Also just, I think sometimes healthier to separate work and not totally separate, but have, have lives outside of work as well. Since we were there, I wanted to glean your insights on that because I really admire your journalism work and, and your social activism. So one of the things I like about, I've tried to do in this podcast is ask the guests, because you're all so brilliant, questions you're bringing to the table around these particular topics. And one of the questions you posed around your new book, which I cannot wait to read, is how do you think leadership relates to unlearning? How do you think leadership relates to unlearning? Yeah, it's interesting. I have only started to think of myself as a leader in just the last couple of years. I've always known that I had to do a thing and say things and do things, you know, <laughs> and then like that you interact with people and it influences people. And it, I think that maybe that is leadership, but the way that I've started to think about leadership for myself is as a kind of modeling, striving toward what is, is possible when we work in groups, when we work to connect people and to do things in the world. So unlearning is like at the core of that because I'm, you know, a white person, masculine presenting person in the wealthiest country in the world, in a society that's, you know, cultural imperialism extends around the world. There's a lot of opportunity for non-humility for kind of assuming that I know in the position and place that I've grown up in. And so I think for me to be any kind of leader, I have to be always unlearning, always questioning, always kind of humbling myself and opening. And a big one for me over the last few years has been unlearning defensiveness unlearning my defensive reactions themselves, because that's often like the block, the moment when someone's really saying something to me and I'm not hearing it because I'm experiencing defensiveness. And then maybe later I hear and da, 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 and there's an intellectual kind of process of unlearning. But like right in that moment when those defenses come up, I've been trying to learn about noticing that and learn about having a different reaction even if the reaction is just like, oh, I feel defensive. I'm not going to like talk from that place. I'm going to be quiet <laughs> from that mm. place, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever. It's not, it's not some big performance of me being a, you know, a, a better person. It's really kind of humblingly hard to recognize <laughs> when you, when you're um, being defensive and to sort out whether those defenses are justified because someone's actually attacking you or whether, you know, it's part of this socialization to, that I have, that a lot of people have to like not recognize truths and realities outside of our own. So, yeah. So I think unlearning is like a core practice. I wouldn't even call it a value, but a core practice for me of 
of the kind of leadership that I want to see in the world. I think there's other kinds of leadership. And I think, uh, you know, about also having really powerful role models in this, like people like Adrian Marie Brown, who is a very public practitioner of unlearning, who writes and uh, speaks with such vulnerability about what she doesn't know. A poet from from here in Durham, North Carolina, where I live, named Alexis Pauline Gums, is another kind of model of this, you know, unlearning and vulnerability as a public practice, as a poetic practice. Mentor and friend of mine, Mia Henry, who runs an organization called Freedom Lifted that teaches people about civil rights and social justice history. She's a more private person, but also someone who, in her leadership models unlearning and also from that the school of kind of black feminist thought and so I, I want to acknowledge too that these ideas don't sort of come from me right about leadership as humility or leadership as unlearning they they come from a a long legacy of, of feminists and black feminists and indigenous thinkers and you know people who have influenced me really deeply and who have helped me unlearn through their words and in some cases through relationship. Thank you for sharing all that. I, I know some of their work as well, and it certainly supports and inspires and models ways of being that lead us towards or co-create liberation a little bit. And for me, as you were talking about the defensiveness and the practice, for me, I've had to really embody and sink into somatics to really practice that because I am an intellectual, um, as an academic, I get, I'm really good at being in my head in ways that uh, don't serve me often and that disconnect everything else. And I find that if I don't root into my embodied experience and learn to slow down, then the defensiveness will either be below my conscious level and will therefore hijack what I actually care about because the embodied reaction will so overwhelm what, not all the time, obviously, but in like worst case scenarios, it would overwhelm what I'd actually want, how I'd actually want to show up. And so really kind of working with, well, what's that reaction about? How much of that is rooted in white supremacy or transphobia or cultural imperialism? How much of it is rooted in childhood messages about safety and belonging and what's the relationship often there's a clear relationship between those things and what might be other ways of showing up so like really a, a pause to more align with how i want to be in the world and really draw on the insights of some of the people you've talked about and lots of people who have gone before and continue to do this work but that is a very different form of leadership than or leading or co-creating. I mean, that depends on what words we want to use, but it's a very different form of leadership that I grew up having modeled for me um, in the world at large. And I think it's a, we need a, a different way of being together than that more traditional way of, of being, which is slightly oversimplified way of talking about it. But yeah, yeah. But I think people often can conceptualize leadership in U.S. culture as authoritativeness, right? And to me, leadership is undermining authority. <laughs> so, but there, there's contradictions there, right? Because it's like, oh, I'm an author. I have a book. People 
listen to me as like an authority about certain things or whatever. So how do I then continue to undermine that, that framework, that whole idea of expertise or uh, that whole idea of, of knowledge as this individual process. But yeah, it's, it's tricky work. Somatics is another, I think, chapter of this book that I'm writing. I mean, somatics is such a broad like word, but I, but there are a lot of people doing powerful work that I think is creating the conditions up for unlearning through presence in the body in different ways. Yeah. Which has always been, that's always been a challenging direction for me. I think like as a trans person and just someone who like identification with my physical manifestation has never been central to my experience, but it, it's it been a, a fascinating kind of study for, for me to realize, you know, there is an element, it's not necessarily acceptance of the body or of our current embodiment, but an element of sort of the body as a marker or a tool that can, yeah, indicate what's happening for us. And also that we can proactively do things to change our state of mind using our body. And that's also ancient knowledge, right? That's like the knowledge of yoga and meditation and things that go way, way back. <laughs> Studies and sciences that go way, way back. But I do think that they they tie directly into the conditions for unlearning. Like they're definitely an answer to some of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the other questions you posed, we've been talking a little bit about, but let's um, center on it a little bit, which is what are you unlearning right now? You mentioned a few things. Is there anything else you want, you're exploring? I think a lot of um, what I'm unlearning right now, there's so many different things, but but one of them is in kind of a profound way, U.S. centrism just like as an activist and organizer and writer, the U.S. culture is so, and linguistic and literary culture is so dominant. And it's for all these reasons that I don't actually agree with, right? Like capitalism and colonialism. And so I'm really trying to challenge myself on sort of my assumptions about language and who and what it's for and and my just my assumptions about sort of movement building writ large and how much those are grounded in a very US centric view of things and that's come that's one of those unlearnings that's come really directly out of relationships that I I'm in I'm part of a global cohort of of activists and unlearners uh, through a fellowship that I've been in the last couple of years and I'm finding myself just like more personally connected to like-minded people around the world than I have ever been before. And sort of at a new level of challenge with like how to decenter my cultural assumptions and in conversations, even things as simple as like I was recently in Brazil and there's a lot to relate to about Brazil for people from the U.S. Like there are a lot of similarities in terms of the history of racism and the transatlantic slave trade and how that shapes the reality today in Brazil. But I was really trying to push myself too on like not looking for like 
the U.S. equivalent of everything that I learned, right? Like not being like, oh, this thing is interesting. And you know what it's just like? (laughs) Is this thing that I already know about? But actually like that sort of uncomfortable humility of being like, maybe I don't, maybe I don't have any precedent for this, or I can't quite relate to this. Like, and that's also, I think the, the feeling of unlearning is often like that. You don't feel like, you know, anymore. And there's not some sort of solid concrete thing to replace it with. Like it's, it's humbling, but I've definitely been noticing my own tendency to want to make these one-to-one comparisons with things that are going on around the world and be like, yeah, yeah, we have that too. This is our version of it. But then being like me, but maybe it's really not Lewis. Like (laughs) everything doesn't have an equivalent that you can easily understand. So (laughs) yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I find myself doing the same thing around that. That is one of the arenas that I am continually trying to grow and expand on the more transnational framework and the catching my assumptions and my practices that are rooted in U.S. frameworks that, uh, you know, are deeply strong because this is where I live, but also limit a whole lot of things. And it is a practice. It's a practice that requires learning more, connecting more. And I love that you talked about the unknown and not always being able to find the solid ground of the known right away. Is there a way, a practice, something that helps you stay in the unknown? I have a friend, her name is Jessa Ray, who is developing an idea right now in her PhD Mm -hmm. program that's called Pedagogy of the Unknown. And isn't that cool? I know. Like, wow. Uh, hey, nobody plagiarized that. That's just right. <laughs> I probably shouldn't even be giving it away right now on this podcast. But I want to say she came up with that framework from working with three to five year olds, little kids. She's really mm. interested in the pedagogical work that happens at that age, which is so important because a lot of our like structures of how we think are built at that time. So like what we know is then later sort of like plugged in, but the structures themselves are like forming in our minds when we're like one, two, three, four, five years old, really, really quickly. The kids, you know, when she works really in this kind of emergent open-ended way with them are very like comfortable and into the unknown. And so there's a question of when do we lose that and why do we lose that? And what can we as adults learn from actually how like totally cool three-year-olds are with contradiction and with like things being weird, (laughs) 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 like not making sense. And, you know, what is often thought of as like cute kid, like gobbledygook, like Jessa is studying really seriously as kind of a pedagogical framework, how can we embrace the innate curiosity and the innate comfort with the unknown that actually exists in all of us in such a way that that's like maintained throughout our lives so that we become lifelong unlearners instead of learning how to limit ourselves in those years and then having to later unlearn that. (laughs) So that's what comes to my mind when you ask about the unknown is like, learning from people who are really good at the unknown, which is babies, essentially, very, very young children, and just noticing how much of their approach to it is about play and imagination and exploration and 
creating different kinds of worlds and spaces that if you see it, you see it. And if you don't, you don't, but you know, they're like staring into the unknown and totally cool with it. So (laughs) (laughs) I want to be more like that again. Yes. That would be nice. Yes. That wonder I would imagine is also sometimes part of it. Yeah. So what gives you hope these days in the various work that you're doing? I think I've been thinking a lot about the sort of cyclical nature of social justice work. Not that like everything repeats itself. I don't really believe that, but that there's an ebb and flow and that people create formations and organizations and then they end or change and then people create new things. And I think I've experienced some really painful endings over the last few years, you know, of formations and relationships and things that where it just feels like, God, you know, why can't we hold it together? But what's giving me hope is allowing space for this more cyclical understanding of how we work and how we form organizations and spaces as people. And that kind of like tides, like that, that ebbs and flows and we come back to the work that we need to be doing in different ways and different forms and different seasons and just getting, getting comfortable, getting more comfortable with that. I think that's giving me a lot of hope right now. That's a bit abstract, but. <laughs> no, I found that really, really resourcing actually. Thank you for saying and for sharing that. It also feels very anti-capitalist, um, this idea of like constant growth and constant more and more and more you know, orienting to the seasons and the ebbs and flows and that there's a rhythm and trusting the rhythm and the community around us to hold the rhythm that makes sense for each other and what's needed in the moment. When when can we be hoping to read your book on unlearning? Your other book is already out and we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but what about the unlearning book? It will be out in hopefully the spring of 2025 from Beacon Press. Fantastic. And we'll put show notes, ways to contact Lewis in the show notes or follow on social media so you can find out about when that book comes out. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and for your amazing work in the world. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for listening to Change Making Connections. I hope it has supported your social justice and leadership journey. This podcast was produced by the fantastic team at Alt Marketing Consulting. If you enjoyed listening to our show, please subscribe for future episodes and offer up a review wherever you catch your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us for future episodes. Be well.